The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I, you know, I think on balance, I, I, I like to think that I, I take a no-holds-barred approach to, to all of Biden's uh, failures during these first two years. But once again, at the end of the day, uh, or at least the midway point of this presidency, more accurately, I do think that everything, I think the turning point of this presidency was February 24, 2022, when Putin invaded Ukraine and, and Biden began to rally NATO to defend uh, a democracy in the heart of Europe and uh, face down Putin. And I've been from there, a lot of successes followed. Legislative victories that rivaled LBJs, capped by the Inflation Reduction Act, defying the odds in the midterms. So I think Joe Biden does go into the, the third year of his presidency with the wind at his back. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 20th, 2023. We have just ended Biden's first two years as president, and it's a great time to reflect back on the wild national security ride we have had. In fact, Chris Whipple has just done that by publishing his book, The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House, a deeply reported book that contains many interviews with Biden's inner circle. I talked with Chris about the transition from Trump to Biden, about Biden's decision to pull out of Afghanistan, about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, about the Biden administration's strategy of releasing intelligence before the invasion to try to both preempt the invasion and prepare European allies for what would come afterward, and much more. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 20th, Biden's national security presidency so far with Chris Whipple. Chris, I appreciate you coming on the podcast to talk about primarily your new book, the the first, I think it's the very first, very serious, in-depth reported treatment of the first two years of the Biden presidency. People may know you better because of your work chronicling in both film and in book form, the White House Chiefs of Staff, and then the directors of Central Intelligence, CIA directors. Uh, what what made you decide to do a much wider political study of one administration? When people ask me, why did you write a book about uh, the first two years of Joe Biden's presidency? My answer is, how could I not? 
I mean, Joe Biden and his team faced the most daunting array of challenges since FDR's time. A once in a century pandemic, a crippled economy, global warming, racial uh, injustice, the aftermath of a bloody insurrection uh, on the Capitol. And, you know, so how could anybody with a political or storytelling bone in his body not want to tell that story, especially if you could have, a- have access to uh, Joe Biden's inner circle, uh, mm-hmm. which, which I was able to get. So to me, it's, it's, a, it's not so much a history, uh, political history, as it is a, a political thriller. I mean, this is, a, this is a story that has no ending yet. Mm-hmm, definitely. And I'll say it does, it does read that way. You've written it in a, in a very approachable, kind of you're, you're in the room where it happens style. Well, it's great to hear this kind of you. Let me just add to that, that my previous books, you, you were kind to mention the, you know, the gatekeepers and the spy masters on the White House chiefs of staff and, and the CIA directors covered something like 100 years of history. This book covers two years, and yet this was a bigger challenge uh, for me, believe it or not. And one reason is that um, this is the most battened down, disciplined, leak-proof, on-script White House in modern history, I think. They're not easy to get to. Uh, But second, writing about a White House in real time is an amazing challenge. I mean, it's it's like trying Mm -hmm. to design an airplane in mid-flight. You you don't know where where you are or where you're landing or what's going to, what's going to hit you next. A, a COVID variant will, you know, slap you in, in the face. And the next thing you know, you've got an invasion by a tyrant of a democracy in the heart of Europe. Mm-hmm. And you have to just kind of roll with all of that and, and figure out where you come out on the other side. But having said that, that, that kind of challenge provides an even greater reward when you pull it off. Right on. And it, it definitely reads that way. That is, you're, you're in the middle of a thread on Afghanistan or Russia, Ukraine, and suddenly a COVID wave hits, or suddenly there's protests, or suddenly there's an issue that is related to public relations. So we're not going to cover all of that, this being a national security law and policy podcast. But I do want to drill down on a few. And I really want to start with the fact that this administration might not have started at all in the way that it did due to the historically unique transition. Talk a little bit about Christopher Liddell, who's a name that many people still don't know, even though he played a crucial role in transitioning from the Trump administration into the Biden years. It's an amazing story, David. And it it was striking to me that uh, no one else had told it. You know, we may think that there's been so much written about this fraught transition from Trump to Biden that there'd be nothing left to say. Uh, you'd be wrong because I discovered, and as I started to report this, that it was so much worse than we thought, and it looked bad. It was bad enough, God knows, uh, at the time, but it was much, much closer than we thought. The 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 transition, the peaceful transfer of power from Trump to Biden might never have happened if not for one obscure 
Trump staffer, a deputy White House chief of staff named Chris Liddell, who was born in New Zealand, came to the U.S., worked his way up to become CFO of both Microsoft and General Motors, ran Mitt Romney's transition. He was a Romney Republican. He, he, didn't, he wasn't crazy about Trump, but he wound up in the Trump White House. And he very nearly quit because of uh, Trump's excesses. At one point, Liddell was, was about to quit when he was talked off the ledge by Josh Bolton, who was uh, George W. Bush's uh, second chief of staff. There was a small group of people, uh, Bolton and a few others, who were kind of lifeline for Liddell, and they would talk him off the ledge every time he was about to quit because they knew that Liddell was somebody who who might, uh, you, you know, he was a voice of reason, one of the few inside the Trump West Wing. Mm-hmm. Well, in any event, Liddell was there when, uh, you know, as Trump uh, kept threatening to uh, not to respect the results of, a, of the election, he stayed and he managed to carry out what was really a sub rosa operation under Donald Trump's nose and without his knowledge. He kept the wheels of the transition turning. And it's an absolutely stunning story. And as I say, there were moments where he was on the verge of quitting when he was talked into staying. He nearly quit after the insurrection on the attempted insurrection on January 6th, uh, along with many others who did quit, as you know. He was talked into staying. And on the morning of, uh, of January 20th, 2021, he, he walked out of the West Wing, climbed into his, uh, his 1960 Corvette convertible, drove down to the Southwest Gate and uh, tipped his fedora to the Secret Service and roared off down Constitution Avenue, hmm. having felt that he'd, uh, he'd carried out the transition from Trump to Biden. Incredible story. Two quick aspects of that. Uh, one is that it probably wouldn't have happened without the advice, the support, the influence of former chief of staff Josh Bolton, who who was advising him during this time, as well as presidential transition guru and former Lawfare podcast guest David Marchik, uh, and their role you 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 detail. But also an issue I want to ask you about here, which is, was it merely because Trump was so distracted? with the election and trying to manipulate the results of the election and argue that it was unfair, that essentially by not bringing things to his explicit attention, in a sense, Liddell acted kind of like Joe Hagan when he had been deputy chief of staff here, which is getting the business of the White House done, running the operations, and letting the president focus on the big shiny objects he wanted to focus on while the machinery of government continued? What that is, was it a deliberate strategy to keep Trump focused on other things so that they could make sure that the machinery of government moved forward for the next administration? I think the answer is yes. Partly Trump was distracted and and partly because he was up to his eyeballs, as we all know, and scheming and plotting and trying to uh, corrupt his own Justice Department and uh, install a new attorney general and, and people at the CIA and meddling with election results in various states and meeting with that Star Wars bar cast of characters who, of lawyers who kept coming and going. Partly it was that, but partly also the fact that Trump just didn't understand governance, period. 
he had no idea how the levers of, of power operated, uh, no more that four years in than he did on January 21, 2017. So it was partly he didn't understand what a transition was. And also Chris Liddell, as somebody put it, it was a, it was a vivid metaphor. It's kind of like the eye of Sauron. As long as Chris Liddell stayed out of it, stayed stayed away from the Oval Office, and did his thing, he he could uh, Trump would Trump wouldn't interfere. Here's another part of it that is kind of astonishing, and that is Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, the Trump's final chief of staff, who was complicit in almost all of Trump's nefarious deeds at the end, inexplicably turned a blind eye to, and more than turned a blind eye, he actually he actually gave a wink and a nod to Liddell to go ahead with the transition. He just said, look, you know, you do what you have to do, just don't tell the boss. It's hard to it's hard to explain and and but in part I think it's just Meadows fecklessness. He 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 was a yes man to everyone, uh, not just Donald Trump, and he let Liddell go ahead and do his thing. Right on. And the, the one aspect of it may have been that unlike decades ago, the presidential transition process now has parts of it that are a matter of law in terms of when memos must be produced and the the kinds of the kinds of things that go on behind the scenes. But you still raise a, an interesting question, which is someone who is so willing to skirt other issues and push the limits, in this case, basically let the transition go on. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's really hard to overstate how close we came to the peaceful transfer of power not taking place. You you mentioned that there, there are procedures and, and laws governing this, but at the end of the day, it's it's really still remarkable the extent to which this transfer of power we all take for granted uh, comes down to the goodwill of a few people, of Mm -hmm. people with good intentions. God knows they were in short supply in Trump's final days in his White House. There's one Washington institution, Chris, that most people aren't aware of, even a lot of Washington insiders, and you provide an exceptional window into And that is the fact that for the last several transitions, the former chiefs of staff of the White House of both parties have gotten together in a meeting or in the case of the most recent transition in a Zoom call to give advice to the incoming chief of staff, kind of pass on lessons learned, offer support and indicate that we're all here for you. And in this case, if I remember correctly, it was almost all of the 21 or 22 former chiefs of staff, only two or three didn't make it. 19 19 chiefs were on this call, yeah. Okay. With your previous experience working with the chiefs of staff and speaking with with all of them and putting that together and overlaying it onto the Biden experience with Ron Klain coming in, do you feel that Ron Klain, in a sense, had had a head start, that he had been forewarned about some of the issues that even he, with his experience, would not have known about the specific aspect of being the presidential chief of staff for the entire White House operation that helped him with this, as you put it, very challenging transition and beginning of the administration. Well, to begin with, Ron Klain, I think um, every living White House chief of staff would agree that Ron Klain was the best prepared person ever to take on that job. And it's saying something, as you know. 
given the caliber of the people we're talking about. Uh, Klein had worked for nine different White House chiefs of staff going back to his, his early days. But this Zoom call that he had on December 18th, a month before the inauguration, was really remarkable. Um, it, it happened during COVID. This tradition goes back to Rahm Emanuel in 2008. It, that's when it began. And, and we mentioned Josh Bolton. It was Josh Bolton's idea to give, to, to gather all the chiefs in the White House in, the, in his office. He was the mm-hmm. outgoing chief to give advice to the incoming guy, uh, the new kid on the block. So it's been happening since then. And in this case, it was the first time it happened on Zoom. Two of Trump's chiefs were there, John Kelly and Mick Mulvaney, uh, not Reince Priebus or uh, Mark Meadows, who, of course, was in the midst of trying to overturn the election. And it was fascinating because they all gave a you know a piece of advice to, to Rahm. One of my favorite parts of it was uh, LBJ's White House chief of staff, Jim Jones, who was 28 when he during the LBJ's final year in 1968. He's now 82 years old, and he and his piece of wisdom was take care of the president's rest. He, you know, I'm 82 years old. I look at Joe Biden. I recognize myself. I see it in his gait. I'm an expert at tripping going up the stairs. This is somebody who really needs his, his he needs to be taken care of. I used to see too that LBJ had a nap every afternoon. You've got to take care of Joe Biden, and all of them uh, gave advice, and, and all the way from from Jim Jones to, as I say, John Kelly, who uh, who remarkably and maybe ironically offered uh, the advice that you should always. I'm paraphrasing now, but make sure you follow the Constitution and obey the law. Absolutely. There are a couple of big international stories that really center your narrative. And one of them I'd like to jump to is the pullout from Afghanistan and the very hectic experience in those final days. And in the book, you cite a prominent foreign policy expert who mentions that Biden and his team appeared to be in lockstep, which often is a good thing rather than having very different messages coming out of the administration on a contentious issue. But the danger is, as this policy expert put it, that there was an amazing amount of groupthink and no one was looking at the alternatives to a relatively smooth pullout. And I wonder if you can characterize that, especially in terms of the interactions that you got such a good window into about the senior most advisors to the president? Well, the, you know, the Afghan withdrawal, let me just say as as a kind of overarching point before I get into the details, that I really look at this presidency as a kind of tale of two presidencies, the first year and the second. And the first year was, no doubt about it, the first year was really defined by the debacle of the evacuation from Afghanistan. The second year, I think, by the invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden's uh, ability to rally NATO and face down a tyrant. But Afghanistan really triggered, as you know, a steady decline in Joe Biden's 
approval ratings and and obviously had extraordinary consequences for the for the Afghan people. There were real differences of opinion. I th- I think that the comment about groupthink was unfair, really, about Joe Biden's foreign policy and national security team, because it was certainly true that Lloyd Austin and, and General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and of course, Austin's defense secretary, argued strenuously f- to keep a small force, you know, roughly 4,000, 4,500 or so troops, uh, maintain this, what they considered a relatively small investment in keeping Afghanistan stable. Joe Biden, of course, came in determined, hell-bent on withdrawing from Afghanistan, but promised he would hear other points of view. They did many NSC meetings. They they had a long one with Admiral Jim Stavridis, who was one of the characters in the book, who who also argued uh, for the the proposition that we should stay with a small imprint in Afghanistan. They lost that argument, um, obviously. Uh, Joe Biden was not convinced. And it was, to me, it, it fascinating because I I got to, to spend a time with, I, I talked at length with Tony Blinken about this. I, I talked at length with General Mark Milley, who gave me a master class in, in his thinking on, on all of this. In the end, as Mark, Mark Milley de- described it in pretty compellingly, I think, he said that um, Joe Biden essentially said, look, the day he'd set a deadline for January 31st. And of course, prior to that, uh, Donald Trump had set a deadline of May 1st for getting out of the country. Joe Biden argued that the day after that deadline, we would be back to square one fighting a war against the Taliban. The Taliban would step up their attacks and we'd be have to increase troops all over again. It was a recipe for endless war. Milley said to me, conceded that he could not answer that argument. He, he could not persuasively argue that that wouldn't be the case. And so <clears throat> Milley, Austin, Stavridis, and others lost the argument. And uh, the withdrawal uh, proceeded. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Part of the issue that you develop in part from your conversation with the Secretary of State involves what was the intelligence picture about the possibility or the probability and especially the speed of a potential Afghan government collapse 
you have quite a contrast in people's memories on this between the Secretary of State and between Bill Burns and others. Can you characterize what each of them said about the intelligence on the Afghanistan government and where you come out after hearing both points of view? So clearly, uh, there was plenty of drama to the evacuation of Afghanistan, as we all know, watching it on television. But it turns out that there was also plenty of drama behind the scenes uh, among Biden's uh, advisors. Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, told me in no uncertain terms that everything they did was based on a fatally flawed intelligence assessment that predicted that the Afghan government and armed forces would last, would be stable for 18 months. Well, this was news when I sat down with, to, to Bill, it was news to Bill Burns when I sat down with him, the, the CIA director in his office on the seventh floor of CIA headquarters over at Langley. And we talked about this at length. And he said, no, look, we, he said, we were clear-eyed, the CIA was about the fragility of the Afghan government and armed forces. And he said that, especially if you pulled out two legs of the stool, as he put it, the American military and the American contractors, that that was a recipe for quick collapse. Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, had yet another version in which he said, no, the intelligence he remembered was that the Afghan government would last until about Thanksgiving. So they're all over the place. And and I think that this was obviously part of the problem. If you look at it, it's pretty clear that the execution of the of the evacuation was was based on the assumption that they they had more time. We had a only seven hundred troops on the ground to to conduct that evacuation. That was the cap that Austin and Millie had were operating under. It was based on a false assumption that the Afghan government would last. Right on. Well, whether. The historians who look back at this with even more full information than you were able to uncover characterize this as an intelligence failure or a policy failure or some degree of both. There is certainly a contrast with another story that you you tell at length throughout the book, which is the awareness of what Russia was going to do in Ukraine and the unprecedented or virtually unprecedented willingness of the president of the United States personally to direct that intelligence be declassified and released to allies and also to to the public to preempt a lot of Russia's planned shenanigans before the invasion. And I'm hoping by contrasting it with the Afghanistan pullout that you can shed some light on this. How extraordinary was that and what aspects of it surprised you as you were interviewing the chairman and others? Of course, I described the Afghan evacuation as a whole of government failure in which everybody did almost everything wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me as you ask that question that in the case of Ukraine, it was almost the opposite, where everyone did almost everything right. And it began with the performance of the intelligence community and uh, predicting what Vladimir Putin was up to. It was it rivaled the uh, performance of the intel community during the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
when they were able to get stolen blueprints of uh, the Russian missile sites in Cuba and U-2 flights and, and prepare JFK for what was happening. It was an extraordinary performance. So we had, the intelligence community had the, the blueprint for the invasion. Joe Biden acted on it. And I told the story, I read, in fact, the book opens with a scene in the Oval Office in which uh, they're waiting for Bill Burns to, as he's returning from his trip to Moscow on the eve just before the invasion, in which he got on the phone with Vladimir Putin and became convinced that Putin was going ahead and Burns flew back and briefed uh, Biden and his key advisors. And and from that moment forward, Joe Biden really rose to the occasion. He was, I think, better prepared than anyone I can think of to face that moment. He'd spent his entire career really uh, studying the the Russians and, and of course, the, the Soviets and during the Cold War days. And he was um, uniquely qualified to do this. Um, So they were able to rally skeptical allies. They couldn't really convince them until until the invasion took place. But they were able to, uh, in the walk up to the war, prepare Zelensky for what was about to happen. I tell the previously untold story of how uh, Kamala Harris had a private meeting with Zelensky at the Munich Security Conference on the eve of the invasion, which she uh, she took him aside privately and told him that not only are the Russians coming for Ukraine, they're coming for you and your family personally. Zelensky was still a skeptic at that point. And when he left the room, she turned to one of her aides and she said, I wonder if that's the last time we see him alive. Wow. This whole thing was closer than anybody realized, but Biden was convinced it was going to happen. And um, very quickly on February 24th, 2022, the NATO allies realized that this was this was real and this was, in effect, their 9-11. Absolutely. You talked about Bill Burns briefly there. And I'm hoping you can characterize how important it was to have Bill Burns there, who who I would put perhaps up there with Ron Newman and Tom Pickering as some of the best best placed and well-regarded diplomats of their generation. But now, of course, as CIA director, bringing all of that experience, including his stints of service in Moscow, to bear and being able to be, in a sense, a different credible channel to try to communicate with Putin and to carry messages back to Washington. So describe Bill Burns' place in this and how you think it was important to have someone of his background here at the time to help the president make these tough choices about how and whether to release intelligence and prepare allies. Well, I said it a minute ago that uh, Joe Biden was uniquely prepared to rally the NATO allies and and face down uh, Vladimir Putin. you really have to say that Bill Burns was really the the perfect person to uh, to be CIA director at the time as well. I think, uh, in addition to the diplomats you mentioned, I I throw in Dick Holbrook as as one of the great ones. Nobody could be 
uh, less like Holbrook in terms of uh, his personality, um, but um, you know he's he's measured where where Holbrook was impulsive and but I I Burns was really uniquely qualified to deal with this for a number of reasons not only because he was the quintessential diplomat the most accomplished of his generation but he knew knew and knows Vladimir Putin better than anyone other than Putin's inner circle probably and he um he was ready for this moment um in the in the book i talk about how he took he made a secret mission to to meet with zelensky prior to the invasion and also briefed uh, Putin on the the Russian hit squads that were that were coming to get him. It was it was Burns' intelligence that helped uh, Zelensky to to uh, fend off those attempts on his life. Zelensky also, thanks to Burns, had really the blueprint for the Russian invasion. And when the uh, when the attack came, uh, the Ukrainians were were waiting for them. One of the untold stories in the book is how two Russian transport planes carrying 150 elite Russian paratroopers in each were shot out of the sky in the early in the early days of the invasion, and and this this was one of the turning points in the battle for for Kiev. The rest, of course, is history. But um, I tell the I tell the story of how um, that intelligence the 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 U.S intelligence campaign to to declassify what we knew about the Russian disinformation and uh, their their plots to that involved you know there were outlandish uh, stunts that they were they were planning involving the use of dead bodies to 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 fake provocations by the Ukrainians and everything else when Mark Milley briefed President Biden on these. Biden was so appalled and 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 mm-hmm. incredulous that he he said, "Can we put this out there? Can we make this public?" To which General Milley replied, "Well, I can't, sir, but you can, and Avril Haines can." That was how that intelligence campaign began of, of unmasking Putin's uh, malign plans, and so it was really a an impressive performance by the intelligence, maybe one of their finest hours, uh, I think. There is a bit of a theme here, Chris. You, you've described Biden as exceptionally well-prepared for for this moment. You've described Ron Klain similarly, certainly Bill Burns. There's one other character in this story who hasn't received nearly as much attention as the Afghanistan pullout story and the Ukraine story, and that's John Kerry working as the climate envoy. Why did you feel it was important to include him in this narrative of big picture stories? And do you think he was also uniquely placed for this moment, especially regarding the Chinese leadership? Well, I thought John Kerry was an essential character in this book, because when you think about the challenges facing uh, Joe Biden when he took office in January of 2021, Global warming is clearly it's an existential threat. It clearly, you know, belongs along with the the pandemic and the crippled economy and and the invasion of Ukraine. It, it's it's certainly in the same league as a as a threat. And nobody knows it better than John Kerry. I mean, this is the guy who uh, 
who going back decades uh, as a senator uh, when he was when he was a young man was went to school on this subject uh, well before most others and and was the architect of course of the Paris Accord uh, under uh, under Obama he was obviously the go-to person on this subject so so I tell the story of um, of how John Kerry tried to negotiate with the first with the Chinese um, early in the administration and was terribly frustrated by that. He was very close with the the Chinese uh, climate envoy, but quickly realized that he wasn't calling the, sh- the shots anymore. Only Chi could could really reach an agreement with the U.S. And so Kerry was frustrated, and he with the Chinese. He was also somewhat frustrated with our own government, the U.S. government, because because of all the other things that were competing for Biden's attention from COVID to Ukraine. So Kerry agitated for a summit between Joe Biden and uh, and Xi, and and nobody was nobody was paying attention to this or or telling this story, and and nobody really knew this was going on behind closed doors. So. So I tell that story in the book. There are so many other stories here, Chris, um, about national security, but even the wider issues of the presidency that we'll just have to point people to the book because we could we could go on for 45 hours, not just 45 minutes. But I do want to touch on a couple of things quickly. One of them is you have some interesting coverage, I'll say, about the caution with which President Biden has treated his own Secret Service detail. In light of what came out from the January 6th hearings and in the January 6th report about the Secret Service and their interactions with President Trump, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about that. Why is it that Biden seems to be so hesitant about giving his full confidence to the Secret Service? And what do you make of it? This was really stunning to me, David, um, when I learned it, and um, I still find it kind of hard to believe. Uh, you know, we we all think of the Secret Service. You know, I think despite the, their recent difficulties, with with a lot of respect, we we think of them as people who check their politics at the door before they, you know, protect the president. And I think um, Joe Biden discovered early on. Uh, when he, after becoming president, that uh, you know a number of uh, the agents in his detail uh, were MAGA sympathizers, and maybe that shouldn't be shocking to to anybody who thinks about this, because law enforcement, not just the Secret Service, but law enforcement writ large, is populated by people with a lot of people with deeply conservative views. Uh, but again, we expect the Secret Service not just to protect our, our presidents, but to keep their secrets. And Biden was not at all sure he could trust them to do so. You know, think about it for a second. For context here, think of how much Trump tried and to some extent succeeded in politicizing that agency. He took the most loyal agent he had, Tony Ornato, and made him deputy White House deputy chief of staff for operations, a boldly political move that no other president would consider doing. These aren't, these aren't political people. They're not supposed to be. 
and that was <clears throat> all you need to know about how Trump regarded the Secret Service. And then think about January 6th, when Mike Pence was in the loading dock at the Capitol, underneath the uh, U.S. Capitol, uh, as a mob was pursuing him and trying to hang him when he refused to get in his details car. He wasn't sure where they were, where they were going to take him. He, he was, wasn't sure that they weren't part of Trump's plot. You know, that's the kind of context that this was happening in here. And I'm not suggesting that Joe Biden's Secret Service detail is a threat to him physically, but he was troubled by the fact that there were there were members of his detail that he felt he couldn't trust. It is disturbing to to even think about that and its implications, that's for sure. Let's wrap up, Chris, with, with some overall thoughts. I will say you, you have remarkable access to a, a lot of people here, both in this administration and people who have uh, weighed in with the current administration or have deep perspective on it. There's definitely a, I don't know, a positive feeling uh, between all the stories, but for Afghanistan and a couple of others, the general sense one gets from looking at the way you've told the story is that the Biden administration has has tackled a lot of things by necessity and tackled a lot of them at the same time by choice. And generally, it sounds like your perspective is they've done a pretty good job with it. Now, a lot of that is from the actors themselves, uh, people telling you, depending on how you spin it, people telling you either excuses for why things didn't work out better or faster, or giving you the rationale and reasoning why. I'm wondering if you can do a little self-reflection at this point and put a wrap on it by describing whether you think overall the Biden administration has done well on these national security and wider issues, or if perhaps because the story isn't fully written yet that you're prepared to, uh, in a sense, walk back some of that positive feeling that comes through the pages of the book? Well, I guess I would, I would, I would say this. I, I, I really do think, as I, as I mentioned before, that this is a tale of two presidencies, the first year and the second. And the story of the third and fourth year, of course, have, have yet to be written. The first year was marked by the blunder, the bungled evacuation of Afghanistan that triggered the long decline in Joe Biden's approval ratings. And, and, and I certainly tell the story of that long period of ugly sort of sausage making on Capitol Hill where he was unable to pass Build Back Better. There's, a, I think, a kind of a dramatic scene when I go to see Ron Klain uh, at the moment when it appeared that Joe Biden's entire legislative agenda was hanging in the balance and, and maybe this presidency would fail. Um, so I think, I, you know, I think on balance, I, I, I like to think that I, I take a no holds barred approach to, to all of Biden's uh, failures during these first two years. But once again, at the end of the day, uh, or at least the midway point of this presidency, more accurately, I do think that everything, I think the turning point of this presidency was February 24, 2022, when Putin invaded Ukraine and, and Biden began to rally NATO to defend uh, a democracy in the heart of Europe and uh, face down Putin. And I've been from there, a lot of successes followed. 
legislative victories that rivaled LBJ's, capped by the Inflation Reduction Act, defying the odds in the midterms. So I think Joe Biden does go into the the third year of his presidency with the wind at his back. And now you could argue the hard part begins. He's He's by no means out of the woods because he has to continue to rally NATO to defend Ukraine. He has to avoid a recession and control inflation. He's nowhere near done. But let me also add that I, I like to think this this is not a book just for political junkies either. The, my, you know, some of my favorite parts of the book are the unguarded human moments when, mm-hmm. when we, we find out what Joe Biden really thinks about Kamala Harris, what he, the, the, his fraught relationship with the Secret Service, what happened on the worst day of his presidency when 13 service members were killed in that terrible suicide bombing in Kabul. Um, as a thunderstorm struck the White House and and Joe Biden being uh, personally, his personal anguish when some of the families blamed him for their loss. And so I like to think that this is a book that has something for everyone and not just political junkies. And and that at the end of it, um, I'm pretty balanced about uh, Biden's failures and his successes. Mm hmm. I will say that it is remarkable in that it is both a window into the sausage making of policy down to the individual conversations at the tactical level, as well as the strategic thinking going into many different policies, as well as just a a human study of, of Joe Biden and those he's interacting with. Chris, congratulations on the reception so far to your book, The Fight of his life. And thank you for joining me on the podcast to talk through some of the national security stories in it. Always a pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of all Lawfare podcasts that have ads by becoming a material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. That also helps us do what we do, and we appreciate your support. This podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell. Your audio engineer for this episode was Goat Rodeo's Kara Schillen. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.